The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Father, we're a needy people who desire to stand in your light and be tuned to your desires, not ours. And so I pray, I pray that you make us people worthy of our calling. I pray that you make us people that in this very day grow in you, grow in what you want. In this very hour, we grow in that, Father. So give us Christian goals and give us godly aims in this life and give us hearts that are strengthened as each of us deal with the complexities of a week gone by and give us hearts that are transformed by the gospel as we hang in the balance of a culture that leads us to other desires. Be gracious to us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible this morning and you want to track with me, we're going to be in the book of Romans, chapter 12. Romans, chapter 12, New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. If you have a Bible, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. As you're making your way there, I grew up not far from here, a couple hours from, from Charleston in a rural town. My family's still there. My wife and I grew up in the same town. And what's really interesting about it is I grew up in a small church there. My father's a pastor. He texted me this morning and said, we'll stand in the pulpit together. He's been pastoring for some three to four decades. And so... Uh, He was a pastor, so he grew up as a preacher's kid in a small church. And when you live in those type of communities, when you're in a small, intimate, rural setting, it's still a a community that's very dear to my heart. I still spend a lot of time there. It's nostalgic to me. I still have friends in that community. It's just it's a big blessing in my life. But when you grow up in that type of community, if you didn't grow up in a rural community or a small, tiny community, when you grow up there, you don't know what you don't know. And what I mean by that is before the Internet, if you wore bad jeans or you had a horrific hairdo, you had no idea because it just is what was around you, right? And so you just don't know what you don't know. But growing up in that community, you kind of reflect on things as you get older. You may get out and get a job or go to school, and you start reflecting on things that happen in your life. And it's not necessarily a rural community thing. It may be in just in general you grow up. You start reflecting on things, and you start thinking, you know, that's not maybe my understanding of it then might be a little bit different now. You know, it's, I joke about this, but our, our home there was, we, where I grew up is an acre. We cut the grass, and I'm th- I got to 15 years old, and I'm thinking, they have riding lawnmowers? I had no idea, you know? And so you don't know what you don't know. So as I was reflecting on that time and being here with you this morning, I, 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 it hit me. It dawned on me something that happened to me when I was growing up. And I think my wife knows about this. My wife and I, we've been married uh, over a decade now, and uh, we were high school sweethearts. And so she was, she's been around a long time. And uh, so I, she may know this. But anyway, I was thinking about something that happened to me growing up in the church. And I, not a lot of people know this, and I really hadn't thought about it until this week. I don't really reflect on it often. And I actually had to text my mom to get the facts straight on it. This is why moms are a gift from God. I had to text her to get the facts straight. But it's this. This is a, this is a dirty little secret about me. I, this is, it's more incredible to me at my age now than it was then. I had perfect attendance in Sunday school for almost 12 years. 12 years. I don't say that to be impressive. It blows me away because in 2019, if you can get someone to do something 10 times in a row, you've accomplished something, right? I'm thinking, man, I ought to put this on my resume. But I say this, I'm, th- I'm thinking seriously. So if you grew up in Baptist world, they gave you these gaudy pins. You know what I mean? It's this pin and they put this reef around it and then you, I don't even know what you do with that now. I don't really know where they are, but I did it. I pulled it off. But here's the, here's the truth about that. 
this, I'm just going to get honest with you this morning. The last three or four years of that, it was just full-on labor for me. I mean, I just, it just was duty. And what I mean by that is I just got up and I grinded, grinded it out. I think in myself, and the, when I thought about it this week, the way I reflect on it, I Americanized it. I Americanized it. And what I mean by that is every day it was just about a goal. It was just about accomplishing. It was just about the bottom line. It was about getting to the next Sunday, getting the next pin, and qualifying myself as this Christian, this person that had done it. I'm a Christian all throughout that. I'm a regenerate child of God throughout that. I love God, what might have you. But the last four or five years, there's something that changed in me in the middle of that. It really did. And as I reflect on that, and I think about what changed on that, what is the, what is the issue on that, here's the answer to that. The motion of my heart was altered, which is where the title of the sermon comes from. The motion of my heart was changed, and so the object of my desires were different. My mind, my body is all moving in one direction, but my heart is somewhere over here on that. And I think that's a truth, and here's the, here's the reality of it. I think this happens often. And I'm going to make a statement here, and I genuinely believe this. I've been in the weeds of the local... I've been one of you my whole life. I've been in the pews... I've been all, I've done just about anything you can do in a church as a pastor's kid. And this is the truth that I, I genuinely believe. I think that this is one of the largest pitfalls of the Christian faith. Is if you want me to level with you, everyone in this room, and I'm not saying this to make myself feel better. I'm saying this because I know where you're at. Everyone in this room is dealing with issues of the heart in one way or the other. Everyone in this room. And there's two ditches on the side of Christian faith, I think, if you're in the faith. You're either totally indifferent about the Christian faith, you don't want anything to do with it. You may be here this morning, you're struggling with this, you're thinking, I don't know what this whole Christian thing is, I don't know what this church thing's all about, so there's an issue with your heart there. But if you're in the faith, if you've been here a while, you sort of get to two different places. And lock in here, I'm going somewhere with this. You sort of get to two different places. You may say one of two things. You may say, I get up, I go do it, I make it happen. I've been serving here for 30 or 40 years so far, and it's just a duty to me and you don't even feel anything anymore. Or the other side of it is that you just don't do it anymore. You're just thinking, I'm totally burned out with it. And I think it's an issue on the heart. But, it, but alas, as with all things in the Christian journey, there is directive. There is directive for us. And that's precisely what Paul does in the book of Romans, specifically in chapter 12. So if you have a Bible and you're going to do it, we're going to open and read God's Word now. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 Hear the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by, the test, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The Apostle Paul is writing the book of Romans. You know this. He's doing two things in the book of Romans. He's displaying himself as a man of deep concern. I'm going to connect these dots to you. This is an important twofold paradigm here I'm going to give you. He's, he's conveying himself as a man that is concerned about proper theology, proper doctrine, proper truth about God. And he's also concerning himself with people. And so that's precisely what he does in this book. You know this. The first 11 chapters of Romans... Paul unfolds a, the, a, a massive theological treatise on the doctrines of God. What do we know about God? He does it better in the first 11 chapters of Romans than anywhere in the Bible. Anywhere in the Bible. It's a deep, 
richly theological, profound Bible. He gives you the meat and potatoes of the Christian faith in that. And then, what is beautiful about it, and this is purposeful, I want you to track with me because I'm going I'm to land this thing in about in a few minutes here. What he does in chapter 11 is he pivots the entire book to what we would consider application or exhortation or encouragement. He's basically looking at you and saying, what do we do with the last 11 chapters? And then he gets to chapter 12 and he tells you, this is what we're going to do. And so it's, the, it's this idea that this is where I'm going with all this. It's this idea that theology leads to application. He's given you the way that you apply Christian doctrine to your life. Theology leads to application. That's the Christian journey. Love for theology, love for people. Both of those things go together in the Christian faith. So truth, love. I'm going to give you a, a bunch of different words here. It's truth and love. It's prag- philosophy, pragmatics. It's intellectual assent. Movement, ideas, action, knowledge of God, knowledge of how to, here's the words, form your life. I hope that you can see that, giving it to you every, every way that I know how to give it to you. So you see the pattern here. The question is, where does he get this from? Where does he get this pattern from? He's not making it up. I think this is important to where we're going. What I'm trying to do is show you, you're Bible people, you love the truth. I'm trying to show you where Paul's getting this. At a very high level, he's not making up this idea that you deal with theology and then it actually propels you to do something. He gets it from the great church answer, Jesus Christ himself. This is precisely what Jesus Christ does through all throughout his ministry. You know this. Let me give you an example. Think about the book of John. Everywhere in the book of John, if you're not familiar with it, some of you know this. In the book of John, Jesus makes what we term the I am statements. What he means by those is he's making theological statements all through the book of John. This is what I mean. Everywhere, this is absolutely critical. I want you to catch this. Everywhere through Jesus' ministry, without exception, when he gives truth, he gives deed. Word... The word of Jesus Christ, the truth that he gives people, everywhere there's deed tied to it. Let me show you what I'm talking about. John chapter 6. You remember this. This is famous passage in Jesus' ministry, the gospel according to John. John takes a picture of Jesus. He's fed the 5,000. He's walked on water. He's creating miracles. He's doing miracles. This is what Jesus does. This is the deed. And then right at the end of all of that, he says, I am the bread of life. And later on in the book, he says, I'm the only way. And it got him killed. And so you understand what he's doing here. He's making a theological statement in the middle of his action. So he's always tying word to deed. If you think about the part, the section in here, John chapter 6, where he says, I am the bread of life. What's absolutely fascinating about this, and this blows me away. Jesus talks in third person a lot of times in these. Have you ever thought about this? He talks in third person. If you were to go out those doors right there and run into my daughter, my daughter, her name is Gray, G-R-E-Y, and my wife nicknamed her Bubby. I know that makes no sense to you. B-U-B-B-I-E, Bubby. That's what apparently people in British folks call their grandparents. But anyway, we call her Bubby. If you were to walk through those doors right there and stand in the classroom she's in right now long enough, you would hear her say things like, Bubby put shoes on. She's two years old. Bubby put shoes on. Bubby eat. Bubby go outside. So she talks in third person. And my wife and I, we deal with her like a normal adult. And I tell her all the time, I, this is exactly how I told her. I say, hey, listen, it's kind of cute right now 
depending on what kind of mood you're in, for you to talk in third person. It's, it's sort of cute. But the reality is when you get four or five, it gets weird. It's going to get weird. You're going to look up, and I'm like, people are going to think, why is this girl talking in third person? So at some point in time, you've got to transition out of that. So Jesus Christ is sitting in the middle of the crowd, and he's talking in third person. And the reason he's doing that is he's the, because the only other person in the entire Bible that does that is the God of the Old Testament. Refers to himself in third person. This is what I'm getting at. He's, Jesus Christ is looking at these people, and he's saying, I am full deity. I am equal with God. He's saying, I am the bread of life. I am the only way. And it ultimately, the people that are standing around are looking at him going, this guy is equating himself to, Jesus, to, to God himself, the Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. And it's blowing them away. And when he says, I'm the bread of life, he's attaching word to deed. That's what I'm doing in here. When he says, I'm the bread of life, they're think, these are Old Testament people. These are Deuteronomy people. They're thinking, is this man equating himself to manna? Is this what's going on here? So this is where Paul gets it from. That's all I'm trying to get you to do is get in the motion of every time there's word, there's truth, there's always deed to it. And that's precisely what Paul is doing in this passage. So the pattern of truth, word, and deed, that's all that's going on here. So what Paul does here is he's going to give us two ways to think about this. In the first verse, he gives us, in the first verse of 12, 12-1, he's going to give us an encouragement. And then he's going to roll right into a how-to statement. Encouragement and then how-to. So let's look at it again. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The language there, I appeal to you, he's not browbeating you. Paul's not saying, I command you to do this by the authority of the Apostle Paul. He's not hitting you over the head to you. He's coming at you from a place of love. It's a place of encouragement. This is the Christian faith. He's saying we're taking doctors. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. He's approaching you with love in it. And he says, by the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? He just gave them to you in the first 11 chapters. The mercy of God. Hear this. Salvation. Restoration. Life everlasting from glory to glory. Hope of future glory. Heirs of Christ. Peace with God. From darkness to light, the promises of God, those are the mercies of God. They're, they're the mercies of God in Romans, but I need you to get this. He's not saying, he's, he says, by the mercies of God, not necessarily through the mercies of God. This is so important. I need, you've got to think. You've got to think when you read the Bible. What he's saying here is that because of the mercies of God, it propels you to do something. Theology that does not lead to action is dead. That's what he's telling you in layman terms. He's telling you the first 11 chapters, you've got to do something with it. You've got to do something with it. So that's what he's giving you to in here. And so by the mercies of God, because of his salvation, his restoration, that propels you to do something. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice, we hear this language Often around the church, if you're, again, if you're new to this or you haven't been around a while, it's kind, of, it's kind of odd language sometimes when you deal with the Bible. Living sacrifices. What does he mean by this? He's looking and he's saying, I love you. I want you to do something with this. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. The mercies propel you. It propels you to be a living sacrifice. The million-dollar question is, what does that mean? What does living sacrifice mean here? And so I think the idea... This is important as well that I want you to, we want to, I want to talk with you through real particularly. 
When he's talking about living sacrifice here, he's not talking about a transactional statement. But let's think about this a minute. We live in a transactional world, okay? Everything you do is transactional. You give me money, I give you money. You give me love, I give you love. I cut your grass, you cut my grass. Friday, this couple days ago, Friday, I've lost track of my days here. I was on a... Moonlight in the corporate world, I still do some consulting with that. I was on conference calls for eight hours on Friday. Eight hours almost solid. And all it was was transactional. My company does this, what are you going to do? My employees do this, what are you going to do? I'm going to do this. So you live in this tension. It's all around you. Everything you do is transactional. And I just want to be clear on that. I, I think it's morally neutral. There's absolutely not. I'm a free market guy. I really am. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But you're going to fight against that mentality in the Christian life over and over and over again. It's everywhere around you. So it causes us issues. So hear me loud and clear. I just want to be clear as I can on this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a transactional activity. You bring absolutely nothing to the table. Nothing. You bring nothing to the table. The gospel, I say this everywhere, it's humility from the top to the bottom. The gospel is humility from the top to the bottom. For God, this is a statement, for God to assist you into the light of his gospel is a favor. For him to reach into the abyss of darkness and snatch you from death is a miracle. If you're a child of God in here, you're a miracle. It's not a transactional statement. And so what Paul is saying here is that he's saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the first chapter 11, the mercies of God, they're a way of being in the world. You might want to write that down. They're a means of living out grace living out the gospel. This is how we live out the gospel, by being living sacrifices. And so what what I'm saying here is that living sacrifices is a whole person statement. Let me explain that. A whole person statement. It means that your mind, your body, and here it is, your heart, all of that has to move in the same direction for you to be clearly understanding what Paul is talking about here with a living sacrifice. All of that. So your mind, your body, and your heart, all of that chase after God. Every bit of it. That's the living sacrifice he's dealing with here. What Paul is getting in here is he's, here's the word, here's the title of the sermon. He's teaching you to reform your life. It's a motion of the heart. And by the mercies of God, we're dedicated our whole persons, everything we have, we do it because we don't do it because we owe God something. We do it for worship. That's what he's getting at in this passage here. A living sacrifice means worship. So we see that here. He says, you're holy, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your spiritual worship is the way that you reform your life. So a living sacrifice means you worship God. It means that when you acknowledge Him, when your mind understands that He is the source of all virtue and justice and holiness and wisdom and truth and power and goodness and is the source of everything that the gospel encompasses, when you acknowledge that, when you mentally embrace the gospel, you will, it will cause a motion in your heart. It will cause your heart to move. That is worship. That's worship. Everything, what your hands, what your head, what your heart does. 
this whole person living. Paul's saying, I encourage you, brothers by, and sisters, by the mercies of God, be a living sacrifice, whole body sacrifice to God as a form of worship. That's what he's getting at. Question, how do we reform our life? Answer, whole person dedication to God. What does that look like? That looks like three prongs. You acknowledge God, doctrine, theology, His Word, and then you worship Him through a movement of the heart, and then that results in action. It results in action. The key element to this, the most trying element to this, you know this, you know this, is the heart. It's the most difficult element in this whole section that he's talking about. And listen, I I deal with mine every day. It's exhausting. I mean, let's be honest. It's absolutely exhausting. Every day I deal with it. Every week I run into situations. I, I have to make decisions. This week I'm dealing with other people's conflict, difficult situations. And i be honest with you, it shocks me sometimes the way my heart reacts to it. And so all I'm trying to tell you is i got my hands full too. Every day I have my hands full. It's a complex thing. And so I call it, this is the term that I'm going to run with here, I call it the knowledge-action gap. Okay? There's a gap between knowledge and action in the Christian life. There's a gap there, and it's always been that way. This is nothing new. I love church history. I read. I'm a loser. I read all the time. I love church history. And you, you can't touch anywhere in the whole of Christendom without running into this issue. It's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. But there's hope in all of it, too. So the knowledge-action gap. How do you reform your life? The answer to that is, this might be the key statement of everything I'm going to try to say this morning. How do you close the gap? How do, what do you do to reform your life? You close the gap between knowledge and action, I believe. I believe it's all... How do you close that gap? I think it's all done through the heart. And it's hard work. It's labor-intensive. Might get bloody. Might have to deal with some stuff before God that you're not comfortable dealing with. Might have to have some hard conversations with some friends that may be pulling you into things you shouldn't. It's hard work. How do we close the gap between knowledge and action? You deal with your heart. You deal with your heart. So here's the statement. Where the worship of God exists, where the heart is in motion towards God, there you will find whole person living sacrifice, and there you will also find eyes that look to Christ. You'll find ears that are sensitive to His mercy. You'll find hands that labor for His purposes. And you'll find lives that outwardly endorse His glory. Living sacrifice, closing the gap between knowledge and action, dealing with your heart, you'll find a life. You show me a person doing that every day, wrestling in that every day, I'll show you a person that's trying with everything they have to live a a life that outwardly glorifies them. And I've grown up, and a lot of times, I'm speaking of the churches I grew up, the small churches I grew up, I can name, I could give you people as long as this pulpit, men and women, they weren't giants in this world, but man, they were giants in the kingdom of God. And they knew this. They knew this. 
And so how do we get there? How do we live out whole dedication to Christ, full worship, His mind? How do we control the heart? How do we deal with this? And I'm glad you asked, and Paul gives us two ways here. He gives us two ways that we deal with the heart here. He gives us, I told you, he's going to give you an encouragement. He says, this is what you need to do. And then with that encouragement, he says, how do you do it? How do you do that? He's going to do that here. Look at, you can hear, you can look at verse 2 here. But he gives you, he says, avoid conformity to this world. Renew your mind and pursue the will of God. I don't have time to get into both of these, but I just want to make a quick statement about conforming to the world and renewal of your mind. You read this and you almost think, here's Paul's going again with the same sort of thing. And so... You've got to remember this, this situation, I'm telling you, is mind, body, heart. There's three pieces to whole body, whole person, spiritual worship. There's three pieces to this. And so we retain the knowledge of God. It infl- I'm just saying things to you the same way. We've got to hear, I, if you're like me, you have to hear things three different ways. You hear, you understand, you get knowledge of God, you get doctrine, it inflames your heart and it leads to action. And if there's a gap somewhere in there, we all struggle with that, we've got to deal with it. And so the seat of knowledge, where knowledge resides, is in the heart. Just say that again. The seat of knowledge is in your heart. Here's the statement. Where knowledge does not land in the heart, it is worthless. What you know, the gap between what you know and what you practice is, is incredible. Listen, we know, I've been in this journey for, since I was eight. And the stuff that I know, I'll never practice everything I know about the Christian faith, ever. Why? Because of my heart. Because of my heart. And so I, that, it's, just an, it's just a reminder of the need for the gospel in that. And so here's the kicker to all of it. The only way to avoid the conformity to the world is to relive with a renewed mind through Christ. I want to be clear here. There's only so much you can do to form your life. But statements about life, statements about forming your life, they're exclusively made possible by Jesus Christ. You cannot do it alone. You can't do it under your own power. You need the gospel. Everywhere I go, I make this explicit statement about the gospel, almost to the word. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not saving you from individual, uh, saving an individual from guilt or purposelessness or mindlessnessness. Mindlessnessness, that's a good word, right? Mindlessness. The gospel of Jesus Christ is saving you from high treason against the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Holy Sustainer of everything there was and everything there will be, God Almighty. The gospel is the restoration of you from fundamental, natural-born revolt against the God who is everything holy, everything good, and everything glorious. The gospel is about giving you hope before the creator of the universe who is holy and unblemished and cannot look favorably upon you eternally without the righteousness of another, without the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The only way you avoid conformity to this world and you renew your mind and heart is through the power of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. And then he says you want to be in the will of God. Anytime you talk about the will of God, people perk up. It's a, I mean, it's, I'm not a life coach. I'm a Bible guy. 
So I can give you a lot of things about how do you discern the will of God, and they're good things, and I've counseled people on them before, and I've done them myself, but what is the will of God? When he talks about the will of the God in the Bible, what does that mean? It means a lot of things. At its most fundamental level, your Bible people, your pastor's a Bible man. That's why I love him. The will of God is right here. What does God want for our life? He's given it to us. He's revealed it to us in this word. This is why we stand on this. We don't worship the Bible, but the Bible is the revelation of God Almighty. What's the will of God? The Bible. But deeper than that, at some level, there's a lot that I can be saying here, but I'm just going to peg into one thing here. If you ask me what the will of God is and what Paul is talking about here, very broadly, at 60,000 feet, the will of God is to love him. What does God want from you? God wants you to love him. That's what he wants you to do. He wants you to love him. So when we deal with the word of God, so we focus on the will of God through his love. And so if you love God, you'll offer yourself, you'll offer yourself as a living sacrifice to worship him. You'll, you'll, you'll present your mind and your body and your heart to him. If you love God, you'll avoid conformity to this world. You'll aim to renew your mind in the truths of scripture. You'll lo- if you love God, you'll labor, here it is again, to direct the motions of your heart towards his purposes. If you love God. few weeks back, wife and I are at a social gathering, a Christmas gathering in another part of the state. There's maybe 120 people there, I don't know. Um, we go into these events and I tell people, we're people people. That's my wife and I are people people. I love people. That's why I, why I love God, because he loves people. And we're in there, and we get separated when we're in these things because she's off running her mouth, and I'm off running my mouth. Where, I come, where we come from, we call it politicking. I'm not a politician, but that's what we call it. So you're off doing this and loving on people and asking them about their babies and their moms and dads and their kids and everything. So we're off in separate parts of the rooms. We get separated. An hour goes by. We come back together. We fix our plate. It's a sit-down dinner after you socialize. We sit down at the table. There's a gentleman to my right that I've never met before. We start talking. He introduces me to his husband, who's on the other side of him. We have a conversation. We have, we had, I spent two hours with these gentlemen. I spent two hours with them. Um, somewhere in the middle of the conversation, they look at me and they say, because I, again, I come from the business world. I've been in the church my whole life, but I come from the business world, so people see me. I'm, I've been like lost between two worlds for years now. So people are like, are you businessman, Britt? Are you like preacher, Britt? Like, what's going on with that? So I'm, I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm, so it gives me a great opportunity. So they look at me, and this is, this is what they ask. And it was sincere as it could be. They said, why? Why theology? Because I had told them I'm working, starting to, I'm still in school. I'm starting a dissertation and went to seminary and everything. And they said, why, why theology? Why, why do you do this? Why, why did you go to seminary? Why the pastor thing? And here's, here's, here's what I told them. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I said, I got into this because I love God. I got into this because he called me, but at a more fundamental level, I love God. I love knowing about him. And I love pursuing him through any means possible. And when you make that statement, it's dead silent. It's crickets. 
The point I'm trying to make to you here is my aim is not to make a theological statement to these people. It wasn't to create a clear dividing line with them. It's not to remind them that we each see the world from different angles and that there's this immense chasm between how we view things. That's not what I'm trying to do in that. My aim is to show them my heart. My aim is to show them the complete picture to say to them, I don't have it together, but I'm trying. I love him. That's my aim in all this. My aim is to say that I'm trying to live in a way where my heart and my mind and my actions all align. I'm just trying here. I love God. I love God. And, the, and you get to the end of these and you say, what, what am I supposed to do with this? I get what you're saying. Paul does all this theology and then he gets to encouragement and he asks us to apply it and we're supposed to manage this gap between knowledge and action. What are we supposed to do with all that? What does all of that look like? And that's what the local church in part functions functions to do is to mobilize you in those things. You have pastors to help you deal with it. Quiet times, read the Bible, all of these things that we do in the Christian life. But more fundamentally, what, what does that even look like? What am I supposed to do with all of that? And so I'm going to wrap this up right here, and if you don't hear anything else I'm about to say today, I I want you to lock in here. I know I've said a lot, but I want you to lock in here with me at the end. What is the one reason we should be concerned about where our hearts are? Give me one reason, Britt, that I should care about this. Here's the answer. A couple weeks back, again, my wife and I are at a social gathering in Atlanta, Georgia, some friends of ours, people there. We drove up from Charleston, drove to Atlanta. We go in the room. We're in the middle of downtown Atlanta at a friend's house. I don't know 85% of the people in the room. They're all successful, best money, education money can buy, Ivy League educations or doctors and physicians and teachers and hedge fund managers and businessmen, yada, yada, yada. And they all look good. Y'all the prime of their life. Y'all got kids, live in nice houses, just got it together, right? That's what it looks like. And I'm standing in the room, and when you get into this world, when you get into pastor world, you start, you start seeing things differently. So I'm sitting in the room, and I'm sitting back, and I'm a thinker. So I'm thinking, looking around the room, and it, and it, and it dawns on me that most people in that room are completely indifferent about what I've given my life to. Not a hostile indifference, just a, got a lot going on. And it dawns on me that most of them in there, they're indifferent about the Redeemer God. And it's not a, it's not a hostile indifference, they just don't know. No idea. And so we leave the party and uh, we're driving home back to Charleston. It's late and I'm, I'm thinking about, my wife's probably sleeping, <laughs> thinking about, First Peter. I've been in First Peter the last couple of years. I don't, it's been a lot of different reasons for it, but I've been in First Peter a lot, really for the last two years. So I'm thinking about First Peter. First Peter's written to suffering Christians, written to Christians that's in persecution, and it's on my mind. And I think about First Peter, and I think about chapter five in First Peter, and I think about the statement first in chapter five of Peter. He's he's dealing with the ploys of the devil. And then he gets to what I believe, and I really genuinely mean this, is one of the sweetest, most galvanizing statements in all of the Bible. Peter says that after you suffered a little while, 
the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will, will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. It's not a suggestion, it's a promise. And so there's been many days in my life that I've clung to this passage. And just to be real honest with you, it's cloaked my life with a hope that's reserved for someone more fitting than I. It's reserved for someone that's more deserving than I am. And it's beyond my comprehension as to why God has called me to himself, why he's held me fast through the blood of Christ, and why he's made me a partaker in his precious grace. It's beyond anything that I can comprehend as to why. And as I reflect on that promise in my life, I cannot help but to think about the void in the life of these people at this gathering, and I weep. I weep. I'm broken over it. It reaps my soul because the people in that room, they don't enjoy the grace of God. They don't enjoy the eternal glory of Christ. They'll never experience restoration. They may not experience confirmation or strength or establishment. And it breaks my heart. Abba Eben, who was the UN ambassador to Israel in the late 1960s and early 1970s, he said that tragedy is the difference between what is and what could have been. And my concern, what keeps me up at night, is that we all live on the brink of this tragedy. Whether you're indifferent about the things of Christ or you've stalled in the Christian life, the difference between what is and what could have been, it rests in the gap between knowledge and action. It rests in your heart. And so my prayer for you, Grace on Ashley, is that the God of all mercy will restructure your lives to bring about whole person living and create a motion of the heart, a movement of the heart towards those without any hope. In the days ahead, may the God of all mercy and kindness strengthen this congregation according to the gospel and according to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we're a broken people. We live with a humility in this that we, we can't undertake anything you call us to without the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so my prayer is that you would burden us deeply. Would burden us deeply, Father, about the gospel that we've received that we didn't deserve, we didn't earn, and that so many people live without. Break our hearts, God, and move us to know you more. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.